Well, again, we welcome you. So glad that you are, are here with us. Why don't we pray together as we prepare to look at this text? God, we long to hear from you. We long for you to make these pages written so long ago come to life for us. And that we could see you in these pages and that we could see ourselves and we could see the work that you are doing in our world. God, I pray that you would help us to have ears to hear and eyes to see. And we trust you for these things through your son, Jesus. Amen. What a week. Am I right? What a week. I mean, from, from terrorism in, in Boston to a massive explosion in Texas, poison sent to our leaders, an earthquake in China. What's wrong with this world? And, and even though I, I know the answer to that question, weeks like this, it, it still sort of just knocks the wind right out of me. What is wrong with this world? And yeah, this, this book, I mean, it, it, it tells us, right? It helps us see that, that we as humans, we have rejected God. We've rebelled against him. And, and as a result, life without God has pushed this world uh, into sort of a cancer of violence and greed and oppression and anger. And not just in this world, but this cancer even lives in here. Right? We, we know that, and we, we, we long to go home, right? We long to return to the, the garden that we were made for, the, the peace and the harmony. Every one of us, I mean, regardless of our background, we know deep down we weren't meant to live in a world like this. And why, why else would we cry out in those moments of anguish and say, why? What is wrong with this world? And even though many of us believe that, that God is moving things toward this, this glorious future, right? That, that justice will be served, that, that all that is lost will be restored, that this world and this heart will be made right. I mean, many of us believe that, that God is, is moving in that direction. But what about now? What do we do about it now? I mean, whether, whether it's terrorism in Boston or, or if, if you were part of our, our conference just a couple weeks ago, right, CG 2013, we talked about all these critical issues in our city of, of racism and education and poverty and, and the way Kansas City is becoming more and more a hub for um, human trafficking even here in our, in our own city. Or if we think about you know, people dying lost without Jesus or, or broken relationships or the, just even the crippling weight of our own sin, what do we do about it now? What's the plan? Brokenness compels us. Brokenness compels us. It, it pushes us. It, it forces us out and forward to, to long for redemption, to seek redemption in every place that we possibly can when, when we see the darkness around us. I mean, who of us should just sort of sit on our hands and wait it out? Not, not God's people, not the church, not, not us. Brokenness compels us. You know, sometimes we think that we sort of feel as if we're the only people who have ever felt this way before. 
these feelings, these, these, this discontent, this struggle. But let me tell you about a group of people who, who had these feelings 2,500 years ago. And, and frankly, even, even worse, because their entire city lay in ruins, a city that had once been absolutely glorious, and now they are being oppressed on every front. Racism, greed, violence, and they have no way to possibly protect themselves. God had once dwelt with them, and now they have nothing. And yet God hears their cries, and he gives them a man to lead them, Nehemiah. His name means the comfort of God. And the brokenness that Nehemiah experienced there in his world 2,500 years ago, it compelled him to weep, to pray, to work, and to trust. And the brokenness that we encounter in our lives and our world compels us as God's people to do the same. So if you have a Bible, if you haven't done it already, uh, good luck finding Nehemiah chapter 1. Uh, You might just look in the table of contents there. It's one that gets lost pretty easily. Um, And Now, in a few days, many of us are going to begin reading this this book together, this tiny little book. Uh, And let me say, if you've given up on the reading plan, uh, quitter. Um, Or if you're just just behind. Or maybe you just haven't, you know, jumped in yet. You're newer here. This is a great place to start because we're going to be reading all of Nehemiah. We're going to be spending four weeks together on Sundays in Nehemiah. So if, if you haven't done that yet, jump in. There's copies of the, of the reading plan at the Welcome Center. But we've been, we've been journeying with the Israelites now really since the, the very beginning, right? We've, we've seen it all together even over these past few months. And we saw them become a nation and build this temple And then last week we saw how over centuries they continued to reject God over and over and over and over again. And finally, the Babylonians swoop in and destroy Jerusalem. They destroy the temple in 586 BC. Uh, They they take all of Israel exile and and enslave them in in a foreign land, a foreign world. Because they had rejected their God. But God never gives up on his people. Never. And so even just 50 years later, a small group of Israelites are allowed to return and begin to resettle Jerusalem. And then in 516 BC, they they rebuild the temple. It's a tiny little temple. It's nothing like Solomon's temple, and yet it's a taste of God's presence there for his people. And then in 458... Ezra returns with with some more Israelites to Jerusalem, begins to to proclaim the law and the importance of the law for the people. And now in 445, we meet this this single guy, this Jewish man living in the palace of one of the greatest rulers, one of the most powerful individuals who's ever lived, Artaxerxes. And you can see on this map that the Persians at this point, uh, for the known world, they are pretty much in charge of everything. I mean, all the green belongs to Persia. You can see Jerusalem over there in the the corner. Um, And and I think we have an arrow to point it out for people to help here. Yeah, there you go. You couldn't see it from the back. Um, But right now, Nehemiah is living in Susa. Susa is the winter home for Artaxerxes. 
A lot of historical records show that this is where he would spend those months. And, and Nehemiah lives there in the palace with this ruler in Susa. And everything is about to change for Nehemiah. In December of, of 445 B.C., some visitors come to him from Jerusalem. Some of his own countrymen And they give him a report of what's going on in that beloved city. These Jewish people in exile. And here's what we read beginning in verse 3. Nehemiah says, And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And in that moment, that simple moment, Nehemiah's life would never be the same. You see, in those days, a city without a wall isn't a city. It's a target. And there they are, open to to all kinds of trouble and pain. And if if we've been paying attention to the story, right, along the way as we've sort of journeyed with the Israelites, I mean, you know that deep down, their real problem, God's people, is a spiritual problem, right? Right? I mean, they they continually reject God. They are in this mess because of themselves. They truly are their own worst enemy in the way they continue to reject their God. And at the beginning of Nehemiah, when we start reading, you kind of have a hunch that God is about to do something spectacular. And and some of us might sort of expect that God is just going to kind of swoop down and save their souls, right? And that's the real problem, isn't it, in here? But he doesn't. Instead, God sends one man to rebuild their walls. And God will restore them spiritually. I mean, we'll see that as we, as we continue in Nehemiah. But first, they need good walls. When God rescues, he rescues whole people. I mean, that, that's just, that's who we are, right? We're, we're not souls, we're humans, Bodies, souls, emotions, minds, all of it. And we are right to care about all of it because God cares about all. He made all of it. He declared it all good. And when God rescues, he rescues whole people. And so he sends this man, Nehemiah. And just look how Nehemiah responds here. Uh, The brokenness that he has just heard about from these individuals compels him to weep. Before anything else, verse 4. It says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. We're not very good at weeping, are we? And I know, we're not all criers, okay? But we all have different sort of personalities. and that, that's, not, that's not what I mean, but we're, we're just not very good at feeling deeply about things, are we? And yet the very first response for Nehemiah is to weep. And why don't we? Why are we so quick to rush to simplistic solutions for complicated problems? Why, when we encounter hurting people, do we so often offer the, um, you know, the advice or the sentiments as, as deep as a greeting card? Why? Weep. And God even commands us, right? In Romans, he says, weep with those who weep. It is our responsibility to be weepers. I heard someone say just recently 
that one of the biggest problems with the American church is that we have no theology of suffering anymore. We've just sort of gotten so comfortable, so insulated that we're either surprised when we witness pain or we get almost immediately bitter when the first thing God tells us to do is weep. But I don't. I mean, truthfully, I mean, the inequality in our educational system in Kansas City, I mean, my, my kids live in Johnson County. I don't weep. The, the idea of, of kids dying without health care, well, my, my kids are covered. It's okay, right? Or even just thinking about the, the massive religious oppression throughout our entire world and how much freedom we have and yet how glibly we respond to our freedom. Millions of Christians would love to be able to gather like this to sing out loud, but have to do it in hiding. Even today, this very day. But I don't, I don't really weep about that, honestly. I mean, in many ways, I mean, this is just a small example, but it kind of is a, a small example of a bigger reality. I mean, for me, it's like, you know, I'm still just learning, even with marriage and with Kelly, that when she comes to me with a problem, she doesn't want me to fix it, Right? Uh, she wants me to listen, and she wants me to feel it with her. Right, Kelly? That's what you told me to say, right? <laughs> <laughs> when so quickly, I just, I just want to run and, and fix it. That's, that's who we are. And guys, I mean, that probably gets you into trouble as well. It gets me into trouble all the time. The first thing, step one for all of us in light of any problem, is to weep, to feel it deeply. Without weeping, any attempt to fix the problems in our lives and in our world will be superficial at best and self-centered at worst. And I know we're not, we're not all going to weep over everything, right? Not all of us. We can't. We don't have the time or the emotional energy. But what does God put on your heart? Now, I mean, that's, that's what Nehemiah says later on in the story in chapter 2, verse 12. He says that God had put this thing in his heart. Which really only makes sense, right? The walls have been broken for 140 years. It's not like this is news. And yet now, all of a sudden, this thing compels him. God had put it on his heart. And if, if we're not weeping over anything, if you're not weeping, if you're not deeply burdened by anything, I mean, ask God to put something in your heart. A ask him to, to break your heart if necessary. A burden for family or a school or, or your neighborhood or something, something globally to, to feel it deep within. I mean, there's no shortage of options for us. And so right now, even, even in this moment, think, think about just one thing. All of us, all right? Kids, you too. I mean, one thing. What is one thing that is deeply broken that just grabs you? That you think maybe, maybe God has put that on your heart. If you're taking notes, write that down. Will you weep about it? Of course, weeping can't be the end, right? I mean, nothing would ever happen, and we would live as emotional train wrecks. But weeping turns to prayer. Brokenness compels us to pray. In his sorrow, right, here in this moment, Nehemiah, he begins fasting and praying. We actually have one of his prayers uh, beginning there in verse 5. 
He prays to God. He says, oh Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He, he begins by, by worshiping God, by acknowledging all the promises that God had made for his people and appealing to God's faithful love. And then he confesses. Middle, middle of verse 6, he says, Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. You know, what intrigues me so much about this prayer of confession is that it's both individual and collective. We just don't think in those terms, do we? And we're so individualistic, even when we, when we approach God. But there is a sense in which you and I, we are culpable for other people's sins. That even in, in ways that we don't realize that there are times when we are absolutely complicit in deep evil in our culture, in our society, in our world. It's not just your sin that's the problem. It's our sin. And so Nehemiah confesses both. And he kind of builds in this, this prayer. He, he says, essentially, he says, God, remember what you said, Moses. I mean, you told Moses that if we reject you, you will scatter us. But... God, right? But if we come back to you, you will bring us back and you will bring us back to your home and you will live with us and you will be our God. Well, well, God, that is what we're asking you to do. That's what I want you to do. We repent. We blew it. We repent. Bring us back. Be our God once more. And for four months, Nehemiah prays. Four months. I mean, chapter 2 is right there, and we'll see in a moment. He gets right to work, but it's in March now. It says the month of Nisan. Four months he prays. I mean, I am so impatient. I don't do anything for four months, right? Let alone pray. We act. I mean, that's just kind of how, how we're wired now, nowadays. We're, we do. I mean, I love a to-do list, right? I love checking things off my to-do list. And, and wrongly, I judge the value of my day based on how productive it was. If I checked a lot of things off, it was a good day. If I didn't, it was a bad day. Anybody else like that? It's ridiculous. What are we, robots? I mean, are the, is the sum total of our existence, our accomplishments, the things we check off of our list? And so I, I read this, right? And I think four months, Nehemiah, why don't you get to work? I mean, the walls are broken. God's people need you. And you're praying for four months? But if we're not praying about these things, what good do we think our work will actually accomplish in the first place? I mean, what good are all those tears if God isn't in them? Are we praying? I mean, that, that one thing that God has put in your heart, whatever it is, whatever you thought of a moment ago, I mean, do, you, do you pray about it regularly? You know, for me, one of, one of my big passions, and probably no surprise, is, is this place, right? All of you and, and this community that, that God has placed me to, to, to serve and to be a part of, it, it, it's you. And oftentimes, I, I have, you know, cried with many of you over illness or loss or, you know, ugliness at work or deep-seated sin issues. I've, I've, I've done that. I've, I've walked those roads with you, and I, I'm driven to see the gospel, right, the good news of Jesus take hold in my life in those areas, in your life. I mean, that's, that's what gets me excited, gets me going, gets me up every morning to say, yes, how can, we, how can we bring the gospel more fully into our hearts and lives, beginning with my own and all of us? 
And yet, even with all of that, it's just so easy to forget to pray. God is the one who rebuilds walls. Not me. Not any of us. He's the one, ultimately, who, who rebuilds families and hearts and lives and nations and broken systems and all that is ugly. Without prayer, any attempt to fix will be superficial at best or self-centered at worst. Brokenness compels us to pray, do we? And yet even here, it's easy to stop, right? Some of us are really good at the first two, right? You've shed your tear. You've prayed your prayer. Now, can't I get back to my life, right? As if the brokenness is merely an interruption and not a disease overtaking our lives and our world. Nehemiah was compelled to work. Don't just pray. Do something. And man, I I love this because this guy has got some serious courage. As I think about this. I mean, chapter one, if you look there, it, it ends with him just saying kind of this reference. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. This is his job description. He was the wine guy for Artaxerxes. He brought him his drinks. And, and sure, Nehemiah, he's a slave, right? Uh, and he had to test the drinks, right? Make sure they weren't poisonous, anything like that. He's a slave, but he is a cushy slave, right? If you're going to be a slave, this is the slave to be. Uh, because you you're living in proximity to the most wealthy, most powerful person in the entire world. Nehemiah had everything he could possibly want right there at his fingertips. He's just right there living in the palace. He was living the good life. You know, not unlike many of us. But he doesn't take his vocation lightly. As a, as a Jewish slave with access to this king. I mean, not unlike Daniel, not unlike Esther, individuals who served their earthly kings and yet knew that they had a higher king, one that they were ultimately held responsible to. And so here is Nehemiah, and he is willing to give up everything in this moment. I mean, even his life, really. I mean, most likely, there's some evidence that would say that Artaxerxes had already forbidden the rebuilding of Jerusalem just a few years earlier. He said, no, this is not going to happen. I don't want this. Not on my watch. And so now Nehemiah goes, and he's about to ask the person who is in charge, the master of the known world, for a favor and to overturn one of his earlier decrees. And really, I mean, if you think of it, even if everything does go well, everything changes for him. He's going to leave all of his comfort, all of his safety, everything that he's ever known and held dear to do this impossible task that he believes that God has called him to. So he says in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, why is your face sad? And I love the honesty of this next part, because even here, right, even with all the praying, all the building up, knowing what he has to do, he is terrified of what is about to happen. He says, then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. 
you know, smart move, right? King, let me just stay first. Never die. That's my hope, okay? Don't die ever at all. But, well, I've got you here. Don't die. But why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And then the king said, what are you requesting? What do you want? And look how Nehemiah responds here. I love, I love, he says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Okay, he hasn't graduated from prayer in this moment. I mean, even here, he, he prays quickly to his God. And then really, almost like it's as, as if it's in the same breath, he says to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, send me to Judah to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And that request kind of goes okay. And so he kind of pushes it a little bit further. And he, he says essentially to Artaxerxes, as the story continues, he's like, and would you mind giving me letters of your authority, right? So everybody knows that I'm doing this in your name so that I come with your power to do this. And Artaxerxes is like, oh, all right, you know, and he does. And then, and then Nehemiah pushes a little bit further. He's like, and if you wouldn't mind, can I have unlimited access to the king's forest? I mean, essentially, do you mind paying for it as, as well? And, and he says, okay, I'll do it. And the real key here is verse 8. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. And it's so clear, right, that God was clearly upon him. And so I kind of think to myself at this point, you know, wouldn't it be awesome to be Nehemiah? I mean, it's just so cool. He's got a book of the Bible named after him. And I mean, he gets to go and do these awesome things. And it just seems so, so exciting. But it's so important to remember that so much of his story is based simply on the fact that he happened to be the cupbearer of the king. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's it for him. I mean, obviously, his, his faith and dependence and all of those things, but none of it would have, been, would have been possible if God hadn't placed him in the right place at the right time, put this thing on his heart, and made him successful. And we're not all going to be Nehemiah. But where has God placed you? Where, where has he put you in life your vocation, your kids, your talents, your resources. God has put you in the right place at the right time for what? I mean, God's sovereign, right? We believe that. He's in control. And so that means you are in the right place at the right time for what? Where does your, your passions and your prayers and your placement in this world, where do, they, where do they all line up? I mean, for some of you, you might say, you know, well, I'm a, I'm a stay-at-home mom, you know, and I'm passionate about my kids. So, so what, is, what does that look like? Well, I mean, pour into your kids, love your kids, you know, train them up to, to love and know Jesus. Maybe, maybe find other kids to be able to pour into. Maybe it's something at, at school or, or, you know, Compassion International, you know, sponsoring some kid overseas. Or even just, I mean, very simply, we, we had a group of, of ladies um, recently go and fill bags of food for kids in the Olathe School District who don't have food over the weekends. There are hundreds of kids in our school district who, who their primary source of food is the free lunches they get at school. 
And so a bunch of them went and packed bags to send them home, and, and Kelly was one of them. And I can't tell you how meaningful it was for her, and for me, really. When she saw um, David's teacher, our son, preparing to give some of those bags to some of his classmates. You just think about that. Wow, even some of my son's friends don't have enough food to eat. And so, so maybe that's, that's an area. Or maybe, maybe you're in business and there are ways that you can use your resources or your, your, your expertise, your education to equip people and to serve people and to serve the better of, of our society, the, the common good of our world for the glory of Christ. Maybe you're retired. You've got some time now. Maybe you're a student and God has put something on your heart in your school or your neighborhood, the things that you can do for the kids around you, for your friends. Where has God placed you? And what are you going to do about it? Brokenness compels us. But thank God we're not on our own. Because God is clearly, clearly orchestrating the events in Nehemiah's life. God is the main character in this story. He is orchestrating the events in Nehemiah's life to accomplish his goals, his purposes. But don't think for a moment that he's not orchestrating the events in our lives to continue his mission as well. And if that's true, like Nehemiah, we are compelled to trust. Brokenness compels us to trust. The problems are just too big. Our sins are too many. The wall is too high. The real problems in our world are way too big for any of us. But God's bigger. He's the one who rebuilds walls, who redeems relationships, who heals heartache. He delights to use us, but he doesn't need any one of us. And so we trust. We see that a little bit as chapter 2 continues. Nehemiah, he ends up in Jerusalem, okay? So some time has passed. He's made the long journey from Susa to Jerusalem. Uh, and he takes a tour around the city at night to, to inspect the walls, and he confronts the brutal facts of his situation. Verse, verse 17, for example, he tells the people of Israel after the inspection, he says, you see the trouble that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burned. I mean, he's not, he's not Pollyanna about the problem, Okay? God's people are never called to be blindly optimistic. In fact, we should be the most realistic because we know the brokenness of sin and the depth of the problem that lies deep within here. We're never called to be blindly optimistic. But we are called to trust. In verse 20, he says, Nehemiah says, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build Nehemiah's work isn't his work. It's God's work. And we, we are simply his servants. And we've got to remember that God cares about these things way more than any of us. Any of these problems that we experience. And so often I know that we can get discouraged, right? As we look at all of the problems, all of the issues... But who are you relying on to rebuild the walls in your life, in our world? 
I mean, next week we're going to see that it's not going to be easy, right? He faces a lot of difficulty. In fact, the mission Nehemiah has accepted is, is nearly impossible. And the things that God calls us to are rarely easy. In fact, the truth is, if you're looking for an easy life, I mean, if that's your big ambition for the human experience, to have an easy life, the reality is Jesus isn't for you. The church isn't for you. The work of redemption It's just, it's not for you. The life he calls us to is hard. But it's so much better than easy. It's good. And we do get get discouraged. Because we look at all the problems, right? We see everything all at once, and, and we struggle to see how anything could possibly ever happen. But that one thing, you know, whatever it is, don't, don't focus on everything. You're not the Savior. I'm not the Savior of the world, remember? But what's the next step for you? In that one thing or in finding that one thing, that, that area where you can sort of give yourself to in passion and devotion, what's the next step? To bring just a little bit of light in a very dark world. What would that look like in your life? What would it look like in your family or your, your neighborhood? What would it look like for us as Christ community to all embrace this? I mean, we, we believe together that the local church, as God designed it, is the hope of the world. That that, that, is, that is our passion, that that is what God has called us to, that our job description is to be on mission with God in everything. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's, that's what defines us. I mean, God, save us. God, save us from being merely a social club or an inspiring weekly gathering. Instead, let us be compelled by his love, by the good news of Jesus, right? To to bring this good news and this passion and this work to others. To not just sit on our hands. And so look at our world. Brokenness compels us. Weep, pray, work, trust, but how can we trust when things are so bad? Anybody else struggle with that? I do. Whether, I mean, whether it's things in Boston or, or Newtown, right, a few months back, or cancer, or just the, the ongoing problems, everything that is awful. I mean, how, how do we trust? We trust because we believe in a God who hates these things even more than we do. I mean, we think we're sad. We think we're angry. God sees everything. And he watches the people he loves, his creation, us. He watches us systematically destroy ourselves and our world through our rejection of him. It breaks his heart. We can trust him because he cares about these things way more than any of us. And we trust him because we believe in a God who doesn't just sit on his hands. Our God actually entered this world, entered into the brokenness. No other system of belief can make that claim. Our God came. He doesn't sit on his hands. And Jesus, he wept over the city of Jerusalem when they continued to reject him. And he prayed and he taught his disciples to pray, thy kingdom come, because he knew that only his kingdom could be the the final remedy of of all of these problems. And he accomplished his work his death on the cross, and so now this promise is written in blood that this world will be made right. And we trust because our God holds the future. He conquered death. 
And so the work that we begin, he will finish. Death will not win. Sin has met its match. Brokenness will be no more. And he will make this place our home. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate this truth around the Lord's table with delight and with joy, gathering around this this thing that that guarantees, Jesus' death and resurrection guarantees that God will be at work in us. I love that. So much hope, uh, even in the context of rebuilding uh, and the pain and the difficulty, even that is, that he will make this place our home. And he, our God, our, our Savior, he will live with us. The work here isn't done, and yet the victory is assured. And so as a great reminder of these things, this, this table that we gather around in celebration. If you know the story, right? Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, he said, this is my body broken for you. And my blood has been poured out for you, poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And even though those words led to his death, they did not lead to his defeat. And so as his people, in joyful anticipation, let's, let's pray together the Lord's Prayer. It's on, on the screen here. Let's pray these words. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.